0: Well, good morning. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really a joy to be with you this morning. I love gathering together as a church family and focusing on God and hearing from the word. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being online and out on the patio. We're going to start off with something a little different this morning. I need one extremely brave volunteer to come up on stage with me, and I'm going to ask you three simple questions, but I won't tell you what they are until you're standing here. Who's brave? One volunteer. I see people volunteering their friends, but nobody volunteering themselves. One brave volunteer. Who is it? All right. Emma, thank you. Here's your mic. Okay, you ready? Ready. Okay. What did you have for lunch yesterday? I had kimbap. A what? Kimbap. Kimbap, okay, cool, nice. Korean, I love it, okay. so. That was question one. Question two. What did you have for dinner a month ago today on Thursday, October 6th? Food. Ah, all right. Good answer. Good answer. Okay. Fair enough. We'll, we'll, we'll accept that. Final question. Tell us about one memorable meal you've had over the last year. I... I got to go to a Nepali restaurant with my parents and I'm a missionary kid from Nepal. Um, so it was really cool to be able to go and eat this food that tastes like home. And the waiter was very surprised when my family could speak Nepali. <laughs> so surprised, he was like, I want to give you guys free dessert. So. That's great. Thank you. All right, let's give him a hand. Nice job. That was awesome. Let's think about Emma's answers for a minute. So, um, lunch yesterday, that's easy. We can all remember, some of us, the first, per- first service person had trouble with that one. But, um, you know, a day or so meals, we can remember that. Most meals we don't remember though. A month ago, I don't know, I don't know what I ate. But then there are some meals in our lives that, that are particularly significant. And Emma shared about this meal at a Nepali restaurant. Think about the things she said that made it significant. She was with her parents. It brought back this connection to the past, where she grew up, home, the food was good, free dessert, that's always memorable, right? So all of these things coming together to make that experience special for her. This morning we're gonna be thinking about meals and how important they are in our lives. Meals shape who we are. Sometimes they shape us physically, And sometimes they shape us in uh, emotional and social and traditional ways. This morning we're gonna be thinking about a particular meal that has shaped a particular group of people for about 3,500 years. This is the Jewish Passover. One commentator said this, he called it the defining ritual in Jewish self-identity. This meal, more than anything else, has shaped who the Jewish people understand themselves to be. If you're just joining us, we are celebrating today, or we are continuing a series in the book of Exodus. And this morning, we get to the main event in the book of Exodus. This is the actual Exodus in Exodus. We get to watch the people of God freed from slavery in Egypt. And this moment is a time when God said he kept watch over his people on this special night. But then in addition to hearing about that particular night, we also hear about this instruction to commemorate that event yearly as a regular celebration. God's people are told to keep watch themselves because God kept watch. So this is a night of watching. Listen to how it's described. This is Exodus 12, verse 42. We read this. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So there's two different nights that we're talking about. The original event of the Exodus and then the ongoing ritual that's been commanded to be celebrated year after year. And our passage this morning in Exodus 12 and 13 jumps back and forth between these two nights regularly. I wanted to show you my study notes. This is, uh, what I had to do was color code the passage to get it straight in my head. The green is the original night of the Exodus and the yellow are the instructions for the ongoing ritual. So you can see how the passage just jumps back and forth so that those two nights are woven together as if they're one. And what we're gonna do to help us get sorted this morning is we're gonna think about some people and how they celebrated these events. So we're gonna start with a man named Joshua. He would end up being Moses' apprentice and later his successor. He would lead God's people into the promised land 40 years after the Exodus. Joshua would have been a young man during the original night of the Passover. He was one of the few people that, were, that was in Egypt and eventually made it into the promised land. He's going to be our guide as we think about that original night, helping us to understand what it might have felt like to be there. But then we have these instructions on how to celebrate the Passover year after year. And so for that, we're gonna turn to a man named Josiah. He was a king that lived about 800 years after Joshua. And he threw one of the biggest Passover celebrations that the country had ever known. We're gonna use him and his experience to understand these instructions from Exodus 12 and 13 and how they help us see what the commemoration of the event was meant to draw out From it. But you might be thinking that as Christians, we have a little more historical insight than the original readers of this text. And so for us, there is a third night that that is there, kind of hiding in the shadows of our awareness. So as we think about these two nights, we're actually going to add that third night to the story. And that is, of course, about 600 years after Josiah. A man walked the streets of Israel and on his last night on earth, he celebrated the Passover with 12 of his followers. And when he did that, he took this meal that had been so significant for God's people for many years and he transformed it. He gave it new meaning. So we're gonna use Jesus as our third character to help us understand how this meal could shape and form us. Joshua will help us understand the original event. Josiah is gonna help us understand the instructions for ongoing remembrance, and then Jesus will help us understand what this all means for us. What we're gonna see is that all of these threads work together throughout history, throughout scripture, throughout God's plan. They touch our lives, and I hope we'll see just the beauty and splendor of this story. I was studying this in a coffee shop a few weeks ago, and I had one of these experiences, I know Scott and Dan, and many of you have probably had, where you're just, you are just start to see the threads of God's plan come together in the scriptures. And, and I was just overcome with awe and worship. I, I could feel it in my body, and I actually looked around the coffee shop to see if anybody was like noticing that I had this, <laughs> was in this odd state of, of awe. I, I don't think anybody could tell. Um, but then I, I immediately felt a little sad, be, because I knew it was going to be my job to help you feel that. <laughs> I wasn't sure I was up to that task. So we're going to ask the Spirit to be at work here, uh, unraveling these texts, helping to invite us into the the splendor, and the majesty, just just the glory of how his plan works together. So let me ask God's spirit here. Father, we pray as we dive into these texts that that you would enlighten us, that your spirit would work, that you would show us what you wanna show us, and that we would come away with a, a deepened understanding of your love for us, your work in our lives, and how we can walk out of here encouraged by your faithfulness, amen. The goal here this morning is pretty simple. I wanna help us see one big overarching idea. God delivers his people in history, in our lives, in real ways. He's done it in the past, he's doing it now, and he'll do it in the future. Two weeks ago, Scott, helped us dive into the story of the first nine plagues, and we saw how those nine plagues were a judgment against the gods of Egypt. And then a week ago, Dan helped us understand the 10th plague and showed us how that was a particular judgment against Pharaoh who imagined himself to be God and helped us to, to realize how the glory of God was making itself known through that judgment. What we'll see this morning is that 10th plague play out and how in that, God demonstrates who he is. Listen to how the narrator puts it at the beginning of our passage. This is Exodus 12, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. God says that he is going to go through the land of Egypt and strike down all the firstborn. And if you are an ancient Near Eastern family, this is about the worst thing that could be done to you. You are destroying your lineage, you're destroying your name, everything you've worked to produce, you're putting to an end. And yet God said, that he would protect his people from this plague. He gave them a a specific thing to do in order to protect themselves from the devastation that was about to come. Listen to what that is. Here's verses 22 to 23 of chapter 12. He tells them, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. This is after having sacrificed a lamb And touch the the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of that door of the house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and in the doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So he gives his people this To do to protect themselves. So let's think about Joshua. He's a young man, probably the eldest son of his family. He would be the one that would be struck down. And he hears that the destroyer of the Lord is coming through Egypt to strike down all the firstborn. But his family is told if you sacrifice a lamb and take hyssop and put blood on the lintel and the doorposts, then you will be spared. What do you think Joshua feels? You think he's scared? Think he's worried? Did we use the right kind of hyssop? Is there enough blood? What if the blood dries? What if the destroyer doesn't notice? Dad, put two coats of blood on the doorposts. I wanna make sure we get this right. He's probably asking, why did God even tell us to do anything in the first place? I mean, God knows us. He could have just said, I'm going to strike the Egyptians, but spare the Israelites. Why this thing with the blood? And yet it seems like this is how God works. He gives us something to do, some action to take that, that allows us to count ourselves as part of his people. It's not something we earn. We're not doing something to please God, but it's some, something that we do to say, yes, this is who I am. And so Joshua and his family, they, they do this. They follow the instructions. They, they sacrifice the lamb, and they dip the hyssop in the basin, and they spread the blood on the doorposts, and they start to hear cries all throughout the land. We're told that there was a great, cry in the land of Egypt because there was not a single Egyptian household without a dead son in it. And yet it seems that Joshua was spared. And so in that chaos of confusion and grief, Joshua and his family pack up and they leave the land of Egypt. Listen to how that Story is told. We're going to read a few verses from uh, verse 33 to 36. I want you to notice the sense of urgency and anxiety and, and even panic. Starting in verse 33 The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneeling bows being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Uh, Skipping over to verse 40, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Can you picture this scene? Can you picture the anxiety and the panic? How do you feel when you're traveling for a weekend? Now imagine you're told one day, pack up everything you have and leave the place you've lived to go God knows where, literally. And while you do, your neighbors are are throwing their possessions at you because they're worried that that God's going to kill more of them. And so they want to appease whatever horrible being killed their sons. And so they give you their stuff and you pack up your belongings and your dough hasn't even risen and you're carrying other people's clothes and you stumble out of your house to head to freedom. This is what freedom feels like. <laughs> Chaos and turmoil all around. But somehow what is happening is that you're being set free. About 150 years ago, there's a group of people in our country who were told one day that they would be freed from slavery. Here's an account of a woman named Laura Smalley. She was born in Texas as a slave, and she's reflecting on the day she found out that slavery was abolished. Listen to what she says. We didn't know where to go. Mom and them didn't know where to go. You see, after freedom broke, they started just like to turn some of them out, you know? We didn't know where to go. They turned us out just like, you know, you turn out cattle, I'd say. Over and over again, she says, we didn't know where to go get the sense of this disorienting experience. I've I've lived in slavery my whole life. What does it even mean to be free? And when all you've known is bondage, freedom can be scary and unnerving, much less the, the process of becoming free. What I want us to see here is how the experience of what's going on is chaos. And yet somehow what God is doing in that experience is liberating and freeing. It's what the Israelites had always wanted. And it doesn't matter that that, that Joshua is, is worried, his anxiety, his doubt, his concern that they might not have done it right. None of that matters because God is the one freeing him and his family. It doesn't depend on whether you get the hyssop right or enough blood, it depends on God. And God reaches into that land to free his people. This is what we need to know. God delivers his people in real, practical, concrete ways in history. He's done it in the past. He's doing it now and he's gonna do it in the future. Mixed throughout our passage in Exodus 12 and 13 are these instructions for how to celebrate that original event. What God's people should do year after year to commemorate that and to solidify that as the foundation of their identity. Well, at one point, God's people had lost those instructions. They hadn't been celebrating Passover for a long time until this man named King Josiah came on the throne. And Josiah was doing a a kind of regular search of the records when he discovered the instructions in Exodus 12 and 13, about 800 years after the original Passover. And he was horrified that his people had never had this great party. So he decided to throw the biggest Passover celebration ever. Listen to how it's described. This is 2 Chronicles 35. I'll read verses 1 and 7. Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the first month. Then Josiah contributed to the lay people as Passover offerings for all who were present, lambs and young goats from the flock to the number of 30,000 and 3,000 bulls. These were from the king's possessions. Now, I had to look up how many people does a bull feed and 30,000 lambs. I'm sure you already knew that, but I had to look it up. Uh, This is about a million people. Food for a million people that Josiah gave out from the king's storehouses for this Passover celebration. It's complicated enough for us to feed a couple hundred on our patio. Can you imagine this party? Josiah does this, and he follows these instructions that we read about in Exodus 12 and 13. There's very specific instructions that the people of God are told a lot about how they're supposed to do this. They're told that Passover should be the beginning of their year. They should build their whole calendar around Passover kicking things off. This should be the start. They're told that the Passover night actually kicks off a week of celebrations with an extra Sabbath thrown in. there should be a week of parties and enjoyment, family gatherings and fun. We're told that everyone is included. This is not a time for class distinctions or excluding people. This is a time where the whole community comes together. And then we are told that there ought to be three peculiar actions taken during the celebration of the Passover and that your children should ask you questions about why you do those things, and then you should respond a certain way. You're told to to sacrifice a lamb a certain way, you're told to eat unleavened bread, and you're told to consecrate the firstborn child. Now, we're not going to go into all three of those. We're going to focus on the one that's probably the most well-known aspect of the Passover, and that is the idea that you eat unleavened bread. We're going to read the instruction for that and then the response that you're supposed to give in explanation of that act when your children ask about it. Here's Exodus 13, verses 6 through 8. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen in all your territory. You should tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So this makes sense, because if you remember the first night, things were chaos, they were rushed, there was urgency, and so they couldn't even let their bread rise. And so as a way of honoring that, we're going to eat unleavened bread every year to remember the the urgency and anxiety of the original Passover. But the instruction goes farther. The instruction says, remove all leaven, not only from your house, but from the whole land of Israel. Why that added instruction? This is where I'm really grateful that over the pandemic, I learned to bake sourdough along with many others. How many of you have uh, created a starter? I know you're out there. Come on. There you go. All right. All right. I got a few. Thank you. Um, So this is helpful because the Israelites were not going to the store to buy yeast in a jar. When the Bible talks about leaven in the Old Testament, it is what we would call a starter. It was a piece of dough that had natural leavening in it. And the Israelites are told, King Josiah instructs his people, this is what the book says, this is what we're going to do. All of you, destroy your starters. Now, I work really hard to keep my starter alive. Destroying it seems like a terrible idea. And yet, Josiah tells everybody, take all the leaven and get rid of it. Dump it out. And then for a week, we're going to eat crackers instead of bread. But then after that week is over, what happens? They can't just go get more leaven. They do what I and some of you did during the pandemic. They they make a new starter. They mix flour and water every day. And over time, as if by the hand of God, leaven returns to the community of Israel. And when their children ask them, why did we do that? Why did we throw out all the leaven in the first place? They are to say, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I left Egypt. It is to remember that the Lord provides, that the Lord is the one who works, that even when I can't see what's going on, God is doing something. God is bringing life. He's bringing the increase of the dough when I don't even know it. Josiah lived during a time of great political chaos. He would eventually be killed by an Egyptian army, and not long after his death, his city, Jerusalem, would be captured by the Babylonians. So imagine the effect of those million people eating all those lambs and bulls, throwing out their leaven, but trusting that in the middle of the chaos, God is doing something and not just anything. God was delivering his people. They needed to know that God delivers his people. He's done it in the past. He's doing it now. He'll do it in the future. Well, we started off thinking about the 15th century BC, the original night of the Exodus. And then we fast forwarded 800 years to around the 7th century BC. Now we're going to fast forward another 600 or so years to the 1st century AD. When a man named Jesus walked the paths of Israel. And he gathered some disciples and he preached about the coming kingdom of God. Telling people you should repent and believe because something new is about to happen. The kingdom of God is coming now, in a way that you can receive it. And then towards the end of his ministry, in the last couple days of his life, he said this, Luke 22, verse 7 and 8. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. So Peter and John would have been sent to a place to secure a lamb to be sacrificed, to find the hyssop to spread the blood, to clear the place of leaven, to make sure there wasn't any hint of leavening around so that Jesus and his disciples could celebrate this meal. Think about the meaning of that night. Think about how this meal had been celebrated 1,500 years prior, and then year after year after year, God's people celebrated it until Jesus walked the earth and he would celebrate it one final time. Here's what one commentator observed. Every Israelite properly instructed about the Passover should have also partly been prepared to expect a dying Messiah whose shed blood would provide a means of escape from death. When Jesus ate this meal, it meant so much more. All of history had prepared the world for this night. And when it began, when it began, this is what Jesus said. Luke 22 verses 15 and 16. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus was there that first night of the Passover. He watched as the destroyer went through Egypt, and he watched as Joshua was spared. He was there year after year when it was celebrated and when it was not. He was there when King Josiah discovered the book of the law and threw this grand Passover party. He was there year after year from then when it was celebrated and when it was not. And then on this night, he's ready to eat it with his followers. This is the world's biggest understatement. Jesus saying, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you for 1,500 years and more. I have waited to celebrate this meal that means so much to the history of the world. I've waited to eat it with you. And so Jesus did this. He celebrated the meal, and he said these words. Luke 22, verse 19. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's the same thing. Jesus takes this meal that has meant so much, and he says, what's happening right now is a new kind of exodus, a new kind of deliverance. I will be sacrificed. Instead of a perfect lamb, it will be me. Instead of the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, it will be my blood on a cross. Instead of deliverance from taskmasters in Egypt, I will deliver you from sin and death and the evil one. All of this is happening tonight. My body is given for you. If you haven't experienced that, if if you haven't put your faith in this Jesus, this is a great time to do so. I'd love to Talk to you after the service, Talk to one of the pastors. All of history has moved to this night when Jesus says, I am going to deliver you from sin. But then he too says, do this in remembrance of me. He gives us a transformed meal, a new ritual that we can celebrate so that we can remember this act of deliverance and that act of deliverance and everything in between, but also so that we can know that he will act in the future because he speaks of the kingdom to come, and we know that deliverance is still something we wait for. It's still something that we long for and that will come in the future. And so this act, just like the Passover, reminds us of what happened, points to what's happening, and gives us hope for what will happen. This is what we need to know over and over again. God delivers his people. He's done it in the past. He's doing it now. He'll do it in the future. We started this morning thinking about memorable meals. Emma was kind enough to share with us her meal at a Nepali restaurant. And you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it drew from her past, <laughs> it connected her to this experience. It, It it was a relational thing. It was food. It was all of these things coming together. And of course, this morning, as we've talked about three meals, there is a fourth meal that's going to happen. Today, you will have the opportunity to take this meal, to take a cracker and dip it in the cup as a way of doing what Jesus told us to do. Do this in remembrance of me. Instead of Joshua or Josiah or Jesus, it will be you. And it will be your chance to to physically taste and touch this reminder. See, the Passover isn't a sermon that's given every year. It's not an intellectual reminder. It's something you do. Something you do year by year. Rituals and activities, questions and answers, food and family. It's a whole thing that shapes you and reminds you until it gets in your bones that you know God delivers you his people. So maybe you feel like the world's in chaos, which it is. Maybe you feel like your life is in turmoil, which it may be. But know that that if your faith is in Jesus, you are being delivered. That's what God is doing in your life. It may not feel like it. It may not look like it on the outside, but that's what's happening. Not because you've got things right, but because he's the one doing it. So as you celebrate this meal, I, I pray for all of us that we would be deeply connected to what God has done in the past, what he's doing here, and what he will do. Listen to how one scholar puts it. This is scholar Tom Wright. He says, all of this, that is the communion story, the Lord's table, is summed up in a brilliant little sentence in 1 Corinthians 11:26. 26. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, says Paul, you announce the Lord's death until he comes. The present moment, whenever, somehow holds together the one-off past event, the Lord's death, and the great future when God's world will be remade under Jesus' loving rule until he comes. Past and future come rushing together into the present, pouring an ocean of meaning into the little bottle of now. As we celebrate this meal, allow God to remind you of his deliverance. Allow him to speak to you of what he's done in the past, to remind you of what he's doing now and to give you hope for what he's doing in the future. For he is bringing us into a new kingdom where this world will be remade and will be put right under his loving rule. And we know he will do that because of what he's done already. God delivers his people. He's done it in the past, he's doing it now, and he'll do it in the future. Let's pray. Father, we love meals, we love to eat, we love to eat with friends and family, and we're grateful that you gave us this meal, the simplest of things to remind us of the most powerful of ideas of your deliverance in our lives. As we come to the table, as we eat of the bread and the cup, may you be drawing the past into the present and propelling us into the future in hope and confidence. May we trust in your deliverance and may we, may we hope and the freedom that is to come. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.